welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Today I'm transporting us to Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, to meet Dawa Gildan Sherpa. Sherpa means people from the east and is an ancient Tibetan culture and descent with its own language and traditions. Like Dawa, most Sherpas live in Nepal, in the Solokumbu region of the Himalayas, with Everest to the north. Nepal is a beautiful country, home to eight of the 14 highest 8,000-meter-plus mountains in the world. And it's the majestic mountains, Dawa's respect and knowledge of them, and the skills he's developed, which have led to a successful career as a leader and guide. But it's a poor country, classed as low-income by the United Nations, and its people have economic and social mountains to climb every day, just to survive. Dawa has used his personal experiences as a child, a father, and an international traveler to fuel his passion for improving the future for children in Nepal through education, an education that wasn't available to him. He founded Classrooms in the Clouds, a charity dedicated to great education in the Lower Solukumbu region, the area he's from. Namaste, Dawa. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you? Namaste, Helen, and thank you for having me here, and I'm very good. Thank you. And yourself? I'm very well indeed, thank you, and I'm, I'm very excited that this is our first podcast from Nepal. You've just returned, actually, from Africa's highest peak, Mount Kilimanjaro. How was that? This was my second uh, trip, and it went really, really well. And all the participants, they succeeded their ultimate goal of, of their trip, and, uh, and it was a 100% success. And uh, I am planning to go back the same time next year as well. Are you? I might join you if I'm invited. I turned down a trip with my blind friend this year to Kilimanjaro. And when he summited without me as his sighted guide, I really wished I'd gone. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And uh, in the UK, there's a, a travel agent called Dream Challenges. And uh, Dream Challenges, they take overseas challenges. So when they send their challenge to Nepal, I work as a ground agent for Dream Challenges. And whenever they have a challenge on Achilles, they send me to lead their challenge. I'm going back next year to lead a Dream Challenges challenge on Kilimanjaro. That's fantastic. My friend struggled a little bit with the altitude and all that kind of thing. But to you, is Mount Kilimanjaro quite easy next to the higher mountains that you're used to climbing? Well, it is quite easy for me in terms of altitude, but uh, the, the culture-wise and beside pieces are different. And I just learned that Tanzanian language and our language are pretty much similar because in the Tanzanian language, Dawa means medicine. Ah. And in Nepal, we ask uh, soap, we say, give me sabun. In Tanzania, they call sabune for soap. So there are several things similar. We make quite easy. You are also the first Sherpa that I've ever interviewed. And in the West, Dawa, we tend to think of all Sherpas as having incredible mountaineering and trekking skills and an ability to cope with high altitudes and a deep knowledge of the mountains, all of which I know you have. But just explain in your words what Sherpa means to you and a little bit about your culture. Once I have checked the American Dictionary to find the meaning of Sherpas. So in the American Dictionary, the explanation was Sherpa equals to the type of people who carries the most heaviest load in the world. I don't know who explained to the writer, but there are two different words, Shar and Pa. Shar means East and Pa means people. So people from the East 
or people from the Eastern Tibet. And a Sherpa is an ethnic group name. So in Nepal, there are more than 24 different ethnic groups. And a Sherpa is one ethnic group out of uh, 24. And the Sherpa people, they were from the East Tibet. So they are from the high mountain range. And they always been living in the higher altitude. And according to the research done by the doctors, the Sherpa's red blood cells carry more oxygen than the other people who've been living in low altitude. So that's why the Sherpas are better in high altitude. So in history, none of the Everest climbers or none of the Everest record breakers never ever done without Sherpas support. That's absolutely extraordinary. You grew up in a rural village called Lukla, which is also known as the gateway to Everest. What does that mean, Dawa? Is Everest the backdrop for where you were born? Yes, Everest is the backdrop of Lukla, where I was born. As you know, Sir Edmund Hillary from New Zealand, after his successful essay on Mount Everest, he asked the local people, now I had a really successful essay on Everest, I had a really good time, and now I want to give something back into your region. So what do you want? So the locals asked him if he could build an airstrip in Lukla or in this region. So the Sir Edmund Hillary built a nuclear airport back in 1964. And that's the place where all the trekkers and climbers fly in and out. Gosh, you must have seen a lot of changes on Everest, I would imagine, in your lifetime, have you? It's a different place now to it was when you were a boy. The runway was built in 1964. I was born in 1967. 10, 12 years kid. We used to take a plastic pipe, make our own little skis and ski down on the runway. Did you? Yeah. We didn't have a proper shoes. We didn't have a proper poles. We didn't have a proper skis. But all we had is little flip-flops and plastic uh, pipes. And I mended, bended, and, and make our, put a little string and make ourselves uh, put in like a, we have good skis. And we, we just slide down on the, on the runway. But now this is, uh, the, the runway is all uh, protected by uh, police and barbed and now we need to get permission to get, get in and out, etc. And in the past, no one is uh, guarding, so we even take our uh, kettles, go to sheep on the runway to graze. What about growing up in Lukla, Dawa? Paint a picture of what it was like as a small boy. I was born in poor, big family. And when I was uh, little, I mean, there is no school in Lukla. The nearest school from Lukla was 45 minutes walking distance each way each day. So at that time, I could not walk 45 minutes each way each day on my own or my parents didn't have time to take me to the school. So that means I didn't get to go to school until I was 10 years old. And at the age of 11, I just said to myself, well, I need to go to school. Till then, my job was taking care for my parents' animals, such as goat, chicken, cow, because the animals are very precious for them because there, there's no bank to put the money in. So if the people have a money, they invest on the animals. And when they need money, they sell the animal. So that's why the animals are very precious. And until the age of 10, my job was taking care of for my parents' animals. And at, at the age of 11, I just said to myself, well, if I keep looking after these animals, I won't have the future. I really want to go to school. So one day, I just lied to my parents, and I just said, okay, I will look after your animals, but I'll run away from home to go to school. So now this is children lie to their parents not to go to school, but I lied to my parents to go to the school. 
And how did you know, Darwar, at that young age, having spent all your days looking after the animals, that you really needed to go to school and that you wanted to go to school? How did you know at such a young age that that is really what you needed to do and it was important? I was born in a poor big family. And there are some wealthy families as well. And they send their children to the school. They walk their children to the school. And, I, and often I see my friends reading the books and telling me the stories. And that award is still in my mind. And as I said myself, well, I need to go to the school. And I ran away from home to go to the school. However, the school near Lukla, the only age grade up to year six. So that means I only got to go to school for six years in my entire life. And the English language that I'm speaking to now, I just picked up from the people, from the trekkers. Even nowadays, I'm still learning English. And, and uh, during my school days or school years, I also got involved in trekking and climbing industries. You started at the beginning, didn't you, when you started your trekking? Yeah. To go to the school, the school don't supply anything. So we have to take our own lunches, we have to buy our own stationaries and clothes, etc., etc. So we didn't have money, so I had to earn that money myself. So that means I got involved in the trekking and the climbing industry, carrying, uh, carrying loads for trekkers and climbers, made a little money to pay for the school. And uh, then uh, I stood as a kitchen boy, carrying the cooking utensils in the basket, running ahead, displaying everything, preparing the lunch, feeding the others, eat yourself last, do the dishes, pack up and run ahead. And, and I did that for several years. And uh, while I was um, doing these, people saw my uh, hard work and uh, I slowly got uh, promoted as a guide. And uh, through my guiding job, I got an opportunity to visit about 27 different countries. That's amazing. And while I was visiting, visiting those different countries, uh, due to lack of the education, I had to face so much of uh, difficulties, such as filling up the immigration forms, uh, reading the restaurant menus, reading the sign, etc. So due to the lack of education, I once took the wrong box and I got it deported from Seattle Tacoma Airport. Oh no. Oh my goodness. And I, since then, I came back home and I sat down myself and thought a lot, saying, well, how can I help the children in the remote villages who don't have the opportunity to go to school? If someone don't do anything in the remote villages, if someone don't build schools in the remote villages, and, and if someone don't give the children a chance, the children in the remote villages, they may have to face exactly the same problem where I had to face. So since then, I thought a lot, setting up a charity, raising funds, and two building schools in the remote villages. Wow, and that is how you came up with the idea for Classrooms in the Clouds. Yes. And I was reading some statistics, Dawa. I was shocked to learn that only 64% of children in rural areas of Nepal stay in education until they're 15, and only 14% until they're 18. So what you're doing is making a huge difference. Tell me so far, with Classrooms in the Clouds, what you've achieved in terms of building classrooms and hiring teachers. The reason that the only 60% achieve when they get it up to years, uh, certain years is because they, they don't have the facility. Because once they pass that barrier, they have to go elsewhere. That means their parents have more, more expenses. So for instance, I have uh, four kids myself. So when my children were little, there isn't a good school in my hometown. 
So my wife and myself, we only had two options. Option one was keeping the children at home, give them our love, see them grow up, give them opportunity to learn our culture, custom, and history, but not the education. Option two was send them far away from home. Of course, which is going to cost us more. Send, send them far away to the school to get, get them education, but not to give them our love, not to see them grow up, and not to give them an opportunity to learn our culture, custom, and history. That's a heartbreaking choice, Dawa. Yeah, it was. And at the end, we chose the option two. So we send them to Kathmandu, to the capital of the country, where there is a multicultural, multi-language, multi-everything. And our children stayed at the school with different languages and the culture. And of course, they got education, but they lost their mother tongue. They lost their culture. And now... If I ask my son, his name is Kunzang. Kunzang, let's go to Lukla. And he says, what, what is Lukla? What is Lukla? Why we go there? And uh, us Sherpas, we have our own mother tongue, which is Sherpa language. The Sherpa language is similar to Tibetan. And now they can't speak our mother tongue. They only speak either English or, or Nepali. And Nepali is the national language of the country. And, and they, they don't know much about our culture because us Sherpas, we have very, very rich culture. And uh, they don't know much about our culture. And they don't know much about our, our region. So the reason that we set up classroom house to build in the school in the remote villages to give the children in the rural villages opportunity to be with their family, learning their culture, custom, history, and at the same time, an opportunity to uh, get a good education. That's something, Dawa, that I suppose over here in the UK and as a mum to two children myself, we take very much for granted. It's a yeah. very different situation for you. And, and it makes my heart break that you had to lose those years of, of loving them and being around them and watching them grow. Because, of course, education was so important. But the good thing is that you are now making a difference and you're allowing families in areas, places like Lukla, to keep the children, raise them and have them educated because you've built nearly 70 classrooms yes. and sponsored 26 female teachers in the early years sector, also championing women and young girls, which is important in, in your culture too. It's incredible what you've done. Well, we mainly focus on early years and uh, supporting the girls to make a female role model because I am a father of three girls and in Nepal is male-dominated country. And if the girls have education, they can stand on their own feet. If, they don't, if the girls don't have a, a, a good education, all they do is walking between bedroom and the kitchen. So for that, currently we are also focusing on gender-specific facilities at the school. Because the reason is the schools in, in the remote villages, either they have no toilet facilities or even if they have a toilet facilities, there won't be uh, much water and a one toilet for both the genders. And when the girls have their natural process, their puberty, there's no privacy. So if the girls don't go to school or to the school for, for one week every month, that means they miss so much of the lessons. And at the end of the year, their result will be far worse than the boys, and they get shy, embarrassed, and, and drop off at school. So that, that's where, in the remote places, the biggest drop off rate at school is with girls. So now we are trying to build gender-specific toilets with a supply of filtered water in the bathrooms. 
And since we've been doing that, the number of girls hacked up and, and the results are better than the boys. Really? That's amazing. And also, of course, some girls in your culture are married before the age of 15. Yeah, they do. So without an education, I suppose that feels the norm. They stay at home, they cook, they clean, they get married early. And you're giving them an opportunity, an opportunity they so need to to have careers and to have a strong education. And your teachers are role models for them, which is fantastic. Now, also in Nepal, children face a lot of challenges as a result of mother nature. Sure, yeah. So that's very different to, to life here. And I know you've been to the UK about a dozen times. What are the challenges mother nature presents you with when you're trying to learn in Nepal? So here the children have to face so many different uh, things. For example, children in the villages, they have to get up in the morning, have the parents to look after the animals or harvest crops or plant crops. Or if they have uh, younger siblings, the elder uh, siblings duty would be taking care for the younger siblings while the parents are at work. And at the same time, they have to wash the dishes themselves. They have to wash the clothes themselves because there's no dishwasher, there's no washing machines. And some of the places, they don't have running tap water at home. They have to take a container to the communal tap or river to get the water to clean, cook, etc. And uh, once they've done their uh, routine in the morning, it's time to go to school because the school hour in Nepal is from 10 to 4. So if the children are lucky, they get to take some lunch with them. If not, they just go with their lunch for the day. And uh, some children, they walk for three hours each way each day. And at the end of the school day, they may be a bit tired, they may be a bit hungry, but they still have to walk. So that, that, that is the challenges in, in Nepal. It's also very cold in winter. There's the monsoon. During the monsoons, uh, some, some uh, parts will be flooded. And uh, sometimes there were small bridges have uh, been washed away uh, by the flood. And they have to go around, which may take extra hours. And uh, some, some children, if they're lucky, they may get uh, ponchos or umbrella. And some kids, they, they don't even have that. And uh, some kids, they do, they do have a, a backpack to put their books and stationers and but some kids, they don't even have that. So sometimes I see students carrying their books in their hand and they, they run and they slip and fall and uh, their books get dirty. And I often see these kind of pictures in my mind and, and now I'm, I'm planning something else for these kind of you know, kids. Yeah. And also the classrooms I was reading on your website are built to be resistant to magnitude 8 earthquakes. I mean, you have to take all that into account too. How, how do you build them to make sure that they would withstand a, a quake of that magnitude should it happen? Well, before we build uh, classrooms, we take a geologist and a biologist to, to the building area and ask them to test the soil. And then the, the geologist, the biologist, they will uh, make their report and we submit their report to the engineer to make the design. And once they have designed the classrooms, we just follow strictly with their designs and uh, building, and we strictly follow the national building codes. Because the reason is, as you know, we had two big earthquakes back in 2015, and more than 10,000 people lost their properties, and some people lost their lives. And the reason that we are focusing on strong building is if in case if there's any, another natural disaster in the area, 
that our building could be their shelter. And the locals, the villagers could use our classrooms as a shelter. You must think we're very spoiled when you come to Britain, Dawa, and you see the biggest challenges that sort of face parents here is if we're running our kids to school in the car, we might get stuck in a bit of roadworks. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know. You know, it's extraordinary what your children go through. It must make you very proud at the moment because I gather that you're building six new earthquake-resistant classrooms and providing clean water and gender-specific toilets in Lukla, which is where you grew up as a little boy. Yes. How proud does that make you and how have local villagers and their children reacted to having this right in the heart of Lukla? Our initial project was in Lukla. This is back in 2007. And we built two classrooms, a small IT lab and sponsored two teachers. So now, since 2007, we've gone back to Lukla to build better, better facilities because uh, the elevation of Lukla is 2,800 meters, 9,500 feet. And uh, the temperature is cold almost um, 10 months in a year. And uh, I often go to the school during the winter and the children have a big, big jackets. And even the teachers have big jackets and uh, they look a bit cold. So now we are building different classrooms. So this classroom would be uh, very warm and uh, we want the children saying, oh, it's too cold uh, being at home, so we want to go to school because school's warmer. So we want to make that kind of, uh, we want the children to say this, this kind of th- thing from their own world. And the locals are visiting this uh, the building site, and uh, when they look at the building materials that we, we delivered at the building site, they are raising questions saying, where are you going to put all this kind of building materials? And what kind of buildings are you building here? Because the, uh, the locals, they never, never ever seen that kind of people investing that much of an amount on our building. Because, uh, number one, they couldn't afford it. So they are so used to, to build, build it cheaply. Yeah, it must be very special for them. Very special indeed. Um, have you partnered with schools from other places in the world, Dawa? Have you done a classroom partnership, perhaps where children in a country like the UK can partner with one of your classrooms and the UK classroom can learn about your culture and Nepal and and your children can learn about our culture and perhaps exchange small things like books? Well, in the past, I have, I have done a little bit uh, in Australia but not in other countries. So now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, expanding our exploration into, into the, uh, other countries like the uh, U.S. and, uh, and uh, New Zealand because I have a little connection uh, in those countries. Well, I'll help you if you want to do that in the UK. We'll talk about that, not while we're recording our podcast, but we'll talk about that afterwards and see, see what we can do. Um, I have... I have a deep fascination with Everest. I've never been. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed famous climbers like Sir Chris Bonington. I don't know whether you've heard of Chris Bonington. You probably yep, have. Yep, yep, but he led a successful expedition making the first ascent of the southwest face in 1975. And he summited in 1985, I think, with a Norwegian expedition. But how do you think of the mountain? How much does it mean to you? You grew up in its shadow and... I'd just love to hear your thoughts about Everest and what it's like for you working on there. Well, Everest, we are so lucky to have the Everest in our country. And 
I'm kind of worried about Everest, and I'm kind of worried about the tourism industry in Nepal. And the reason that I'm worrying is due to the global warming, the glaciers are melting. Uh, and, uh, and the reason that I'm worrying about the, our tourism industry is because there's very, very unhealthy competition between the tour operators. So I'm talking to the local government how to protect how to preserve the mountain and how to regulate and provide good services for the customers, for the visitors. Because if the business don't have good experience or good time, the industry will go downhill. And also safety is so important. I mean, there are fatalities on Everest. People who climb Everest to the summit are well aware, I think, of the risks. But some of the things you've described there, does that compromise safety sometimes when there's too much competition with tour operators or too many people climbing? They're not talking about the safety. They are talking about the fast cash crop. I mean, when they have an unhealthy competition between, between people, that means there's no... They don't consider the safety. They only consider their incomes and, and their records. So that, that's why I'm worried about the about the Everest and, and uh, the industry. And when you climb it, I mean, I don't know how many times you've you've climbed and guided on Everest. I'm sure you can tell me in a second. But but what is it like in terms of challenge and beauty? And what do you get out of guiding a team up there? I have guided uh, people to Everett Best Camp on a number of uh, times, and I lost the count. But uh, uh, but uh, to the top, I've only uh, been there once. And and, uh, and it, the beauty is there. As I said, I got an opportunity to visit about 26 different countries. But I would say, and no countries can compare with Nepal with the national beauty. And uh, of course, every country has its own national beauty. And some places, some places are more beautiful because they are man-made. But if you are talking about the natural beauty, Nepal can't beat by any other countries. And uh, sometimes when I come back from other country and I come back on the airplane, and as soon as we see, I see the mountain through the window, I just say myself, wow. And, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a beauty beauty side. It's natural beauty. And uh, I often talk to our local politicians. We have the natural beauty. We don't have to uh, make anything. And please, let's create a system, good system. And as as I tell them, if we have the natural beauty of the country, if we have a good system, then we can be the best, best tourist destination in the world. The Tibetan name for Everest I was reading means goddess mother of the world or goddess of the valley. And the Sanskrit name Sagamatha, I hope I pronounced that right, means peak of heaven. Well, different people, uh, different people explain different ways. So Tibetans, Chinese, us shepherds, we call Chomoluma, which means mother goddess of the earth. Chomoluma. And we respect. And Nepali name is Sagarmatha. Sagar means ocean, Matha means in the head, head of the ocean. And when you summited the time that you went right to the top, what are your memories of what it was like reaching the summit and the views and, and how you felt? Okay, we spent a couple of hours at Camp 4, which is uh, 7,900 meters of elevation. And uh, we had our breakfast at 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we left the camp at midnight. After walking two or three hours, I saw a huge, huge brown thing over the sky. And I just 
could not figure out what that was. And I asked my friend, what's that? And he said, that's the sun. So we were so high, closer to, to the sun, so big, which I'd never ever seen. Once you get high, high up to the top, all you get to see is snow-capped mountain above the cloud. So often when you fly overseas in the airplane, you look through the window, you fly above the clouds. So similar on the mountain, because when you get on top, all you get to see is snow-capped mountains singing off above the cloud. That sounds absolutely beautiful. What other mountains around the world are your favorites and, and why? There are several mountains. And I, I also done the Chouyu, which is sixth highest mountain in the world. And Chouyu is located between Tibet and Nepal. And I also did a Broad Peak. Broad Peak is uh, 12th highest mountain in the world, which is in Pakistan. And I did Kili twice. And I did the Machu Picchu. I did the Mount, uh, Mount Rainier and the Mount Baker in the States. There's so many good, good mountains around. And do you really enjoy your job guiding and helping other people realize their dreams? I love my job because this is what I learned and this is what I've been doing for all my life. And now I know how to deal with the people in the altitude and how to help them out of the altitude. And, and guiding job is amazing because you get to visit different countries. You get to meet uh, different people from different parts of the world. And at, at the time you get to earn... This, this, this is amazing. You're being out in nature and enjoying the clean air and you can see the stars with no light pollution. And yeah. I climbed Mount Tupkal twice, which is the highest peak in North Africa. It's not high like you climbed, just over 4,000 meters, but it was absolutely beautiful. Um, I loved every minute of it. I loved the simplicity of... Just being out in the middle of nowhere, it was so beautiful. The local guides were really inspirational. And then at night, we'd sit and we'd eat together. They'd cook amazing food around the campfire. And the stars, I've never seen stars like it. Because, of course, no light pollution or anything like that. No light pollution, no noise pollution, no internet, yeah. No internet. What deep joy. No internet. That was amazing. And I gather you were great friends, Zawa, with the American climber, Scott Fisher, who sadly lost his life on Everest. But you accompanied him on some expeditions, didn't you? Well, it's Scott Fisher and myself. And in, back in 1993, we've been on, a, on the same expedition. I mean, he was uh, running commercial expeditions on different mountains in the world. Back in 1993, he was um, taking a trip to Mount Borunse, which is in Nepal, and then on Everest. That year, I got an opportunity to work for him as a, a male runner and porters uh, in charge. And I, since then, we've we become good friends. I know it's got an so We climbed Mount Amadoblam together. We climbed a broad peak in Pakistan together. And I still keep in touch with his children and in Katy. Katie was here last year. She was here on her honeymoon. She got married last year and I was invited for her wedding, but unfortunately I didn't have a time to go, time to attend her wedding, but she came over to see her. And he sadly died in a blizzard on Everest, I think in 1996. I know you weren't on that climb, but what happened to Scott Dawa? Well, what happened was Scott and myself, we climbed Mount Brodpick in Pakistan in 1995. And he was planning to run a commercial expedition on Everest in 96. So after our successful ascent on Mount Broad Peak, he asked me if I want to go on Everest expedition with him. He said, Tawa, I'm planning to run a, a commercial expedition on Everest next year. So are you interested? 
So if you're interested, you have to be with me 24 hours in a day. You have to be with my personal guide. And at that time, I was working for an Australian company as a guide. I was working for them as a full-time employee. And I could not take a time off from work. And I didn't get to go on Everest with him. So however, I got an opportunity to lead his support trek. Support trek means the participants on the support trek could be the climbers, husband, wife, father, mother, uncle, auntie, brother, sister, whoever. Those people who are on the support trek, they do the trek, they go to base camp, be with the climbers for a couple of days, and while the climbers climb uh, the mountain, the support trekkers fly back home. So I learned his support trek to Marapik and to base camp. And he lost his life and Rough Hall on the same mountain on the same day. I think between Scott and Rob, Rough Hall from New Zealand, there are two big heroes to run the commercial expedition on Everest, and they both had some sort of a competition between two of them, saying who can attract the climbers more, who can take more people to the summit. Two of them had some sort of competition, so that, that's what I call unhealthy competitions. When they have unhealthy competition, they take inexperienced climbers, and I think they made some bad mistakes, taking inexperienced climbers, and those inexperienced climbers put their life in the danger. I suppose the danger is ever-present, and what was really lovely is later on you recovered Scott's wedding ring for his widow, didn't you, which I would imagine would mean an awful lot to Hadawa. Yeah, because uh, I, mean, I was there two years later, and as I saw his body, and as I couldn't leave him there, as I just wanted him to bring down, but uh, his family wouldn't let me. Perhaps a mountaineer like that, they felt that was where his last resting place should be. I think it just reminds us of the dangers of what you do, but also the joy of what you do. You're in an extraordinary job and what you've done in education is fantastic. I don't really know how you've managed to achieve all of this, but I'd just like to say well done, Dawa. I mean, you're making... Thank you. We have so many generosity people around. Our supporters are the heroes. If we don't have the supporters, we won't be able to achieve what we have achieved now. We are running the charity. And if you have the money, you have the charity. If you don't have money, you don't have the charity. Without our donors, we can't do anything, even if we want to do things. Well, Classrooms in the Clouds has definitely inspired me today. And we will talk privately if there's any connections we can make in the UK to try and help. There's learnings on both sides. It's not about the UK just supporting your children in Nepal. We have a lot to learn from your life, your beautiful country, your culture. I think that would make our children's learnings much richer. So I often take school children, scouts, fire cadets to Nepal, and a lot of them change their life. So one of my, uh, cl- I used to be a client, but now we've become friends. My friend from, uh, from Can- Canberra in Australia, they have two boys. So they brought both of their boys to Nepal on two occasions. And now my parents were saying they are so pleased that they brought their boys to Nepal because they were saying their boys were so demanding at home. And after the boys get, get the opportunity to visit Nepal, to see what the Nepalese uh, children have, what they do, what they eat, how they eat, now they are not demanding anything. They have changed their life the other way around. And, and the couple, they were so pleased that they have taken their children to Nepal. Oh, I can imagine. We're going to end, Dawa, asking, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? The biggest risk that I've ever taken? Well, next week, I have uh, 53 scouts from the Midlands. From the Midlands? 
I mean, uh, taking 53 teenagers into the Himalayas is quite a big thing. I love that answer. That's one of my favourite answers. Do you know, we've been asking everybody that question this season and everybody's answered it in a different way that's really surprised me. So here I am talking to a Sherpa who's climbed all these dangerous mountains all over the world and I'm sure you've been in some extraordinary situations and the biggest risk is 53 teenagers from the Midlands. That's absolutely fantastic. Dawa, I knew that I would enjoy this conversation. I've been really looking forward to it. And I just wanted to say a, a massive thank you for sharing some of your story with us. And I do hope next year when you visit the UK in June that we can meet up and have a conversation in person rather than over the internet, which has served us quite well considering you're in Kathmandu. Uh, thank you. And I would uh, like to thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of Carson Klaus for saving your precious time despite your busy schedule to talk to me and uh, I, I really, really appreciate everything and uh, I, I thank you to your husband as well and uh, hopefully we get uh, another opportunity to talk either by internet or either here or in the UK or Kilimanjaro. Fantastic. Oh my goodness. Or both. I think I'll come and visit you in Nepal at some point as well. That would be extraordinary. What is the greeting that we said namaste at the beginning? The namaste is for everything. So namaste, namaste means I am greeting to you within the God. Right. So we use this word, this is this is the Nepali word, and we use this word anytime, anywhere, to anybody. So I say to you now, Namaste, Dawa. Namaste. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Dawa Geljan Sherpa, founder of Classrooms in the Clouds, which is making a huge difference to children, giving them a safe, rich education in remote areas, and also really championing both girls and women too. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify and all the usual platforms. Join me next week for another great guest and as Dawa would say, namaste. Money, baby,